0: Let's look at the, uh, the, the parasha first, our uh, Torah por- por- portion. Uh, this is the parasha where we learn that a man can't really be used by God until he's 80 years old or older. Or yeah, because um, it wasn't until Moshe was 80 that God called him and gave him a mission. So that must be true across the board and in every generation and forever and ever. Amen. So I don't have a clue what I'm doing up here. Um, a lesson to learn. to be here. Don't go and climb mountains when you're 120 years old. You don't come back. <laughs> That's a good lesson. Don't go climbing mountains when you're 120 because you won't come back. There, there, there is, of course, something to be said for the, the wisdom that can be afforded by age. So this is also a parasha where we see some massively conflicting perspectives. We, have two, we, we see here the collision of two distinctly different worldviews. Uh, on the one side is like the prophet Moshe, who has just spent 40 years in the wilderness, and uh, I'm assuming that his spirituality really de- developed in the wilderness. I'm assuming that he really learned to walk closely with the Creator, uh, like many men have learned in the wilderness, uh, men like even Patrick in, in the last uh, in in, the, in this era. Um, we also have Pharaoh, who has a distinctly different uh, worldview. Uh, Pharaoh th- believes that he is a god. He believes that he is uh, in the god club with the whole pantheon of uh, Egyptian gods. So I-, I thought I would read you a little story about perspectives along those lines. How, uh, how different people can see things uh, radically different. And uh, I, leave, I leave you to determine whether this... Uh, story is true or not. Uh, several centuries ago, the Pope decreed that all the Jews had to convert or leave Italy. There was a huge outcry from the Jewish community, so the Pope offered a deal. He would have a religious debate with the leader of the Jewish community. If the Jews won, they could stay in Italy. If the Pope won, they would have to leave. The Jewish people met and picked an aged but wise Rabbi Moisha to represent them in the debate. However, as Moshe spoke no Italian, and the Pope spoke no Yiddish, they all agreed that it would be a silent debate. On the chosen day, the Pope and Rabbi Moshe sat opposite each other for a full minute before the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Rabbi Moshe looked back and raised one finger. Next, the Pope waved his finger around his head. Rabbi Moshe pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope then brought out a communion wafer and a chalice of wine. Rabbi Moshe pulled out an apple. With that, the Pope stood up and declared that he was beaten, that Rabbi Moshe was too wise and that the Jews could stay. Later, the Cardinals met with the Pope, asking what had happened. The Pope said, Well, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there is still only one God common to both our faiths. Then I waved my finger to show him that God was all around us. He responded by pointing to the ground to show that God was also right here with us. I pulled out the wine and wafer to show that God absolves us of all our sins. He pulled out an apple to remind me of the original sin. He had me beaten and I couldn't continue. Meanwhile, the Jewish community were gathered around Rabbi Moisha. How did you win the debate? they asked. I haven't a clue, said Moshe first he said to me that we had three days to get out of Italy, so I pointed at the ground and said, we're staying right here. <laughs> then he tells me that the whole country would be cleared of Jews, and I said again, we're staying right here. <laughs> and then what? asked a woman. Who knows? said Moisha. He took out his lunch, so I took out mine. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a story about um, differing perspectives. That's probably not a true story, but maybe it does communicate some, some, some truth in it when it comes to this, uh, this Parsha. So, we're going to build on some of the themes we were discussing last week. How's your sound here? Is this too loud? Can you guys hear me okay? Good? Okay, good. Um, We talked last week about how the book of Isaiah gives us a principle. It's an eschatological principle that God declares the end from the beginning. So in other words, God declares prophetic figures and events and dynamics from the book of Genesis, which is the beginning, and perhaps we could also throw in the book of Exodus, which is pretty close to the beginning. He declares these things from these foundational books of Scripture, and they are the keys that unlock the book of Revelation to us. And I I gave you a disclaimer last week that often when we get into Revelation, Revelation stuff and a lot of speculation, it really weirds me out. It's, it's often highly impractical and it can put us in strange mindsets where we kind of forget about just doing life today. And what it, what, on a practical level, what does my discipleship look like, etc. So we're not, I'm going to try and keep, keep our feet on the ground here, right? Just going to give you a couple, like, maybe overall dynamics that we can be watching for in the book of Revelation. Uh, maybe things that we learn about from the historical exodus in Egypt. There are five explicit declarations in this parasha that state why the why the Exodus unfolded the way it did. Why the Creator had this massive head-to-head showdown with Pharaoh. I mean, think about it for a second. Uh, This was brutal for the people of Israel. Like, it it caused some severe emotional trauma to them, to say the least. Like, parents lost their babies. Um, That's a heartbreaker. Like, seriously, I wrestle with that. I, I really wrestle with that. Um, there were things that happened in in the book of Exodus that are just, uh, that that are really not, like, not good. And you have to ask, like, why? why? Why did God let His people go down to Egypt knowing full well that they would encounter tribulation there, knowing full well that some of them would have their hearts broken, uh, knowing full well that it was not going to end in a very pretty scenario? Why didn't He just let them stay in Canaan? And uh, you know, there are multiple answers to that. We're not going to get into all of them today, but I, I think the uh, a couple of His stated objectives in the Exodus and how he, how he set the stage for it may answer that question. So let's look at a couple of those examples remembering that in the book of Revelation for instance it talks about the two witnesses whoever or whatever exactly that's going to be and how one of the things that they were empowered to do was to turn water into blood. So we're hearing echoes of the the uh, the Exodus scenario maybe Moshe and Aharon are somehow prototypical of these two witness figures in the Book of Revelation. Um, you know there there could be some correlations there. Again, I'm I'm not making any dogmatic statements here. I'm I'm sharing with you some of my contemplations as I read the Book of Revelation and as I uh, and as I consider the future. Um, Whatever the case may be in terms of how things are going to play out, these are very relevant because these are objectives that God had for the people of Israel when they were in exile. These are objectives that He has for us because we are technically in exile, even though most of us were born and raised in Canada. So let's look at those. Uh, Exodus chapter 7 verse 17 is the first one. There we read, Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know... That I am Yahweh. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. So there, you'll notice that he he does a supernatural feat. In Hebrew, the word for uh, like for a supernatural feat like that is oat. Everybody say oat. It's uh, translated as "sign" here. Okay, so we see something about a sign in this in this in this context. It's like uh, it's. Um, it's something done by like, a higher power than what can be explained um, on a natural level. So that's the first thing. He turns water to blood. And why does he say he does this? By this you will know that I am Yahweh. So he's introducing himself. He's clarifying his identity. He is, um, he's, um, his name, of course, means his reputation. So he is beginning to show Pharaoh a little something about his reputation. Um, second objective stated objective is in Exodus chapter 8 verse 10 it's the scenario with the the frogs and um, Moshe in verse 9 says the honor is yours to tell me when shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses wow that's classy Moshe is like the honor is yours to tell me when would you like these things to be removed um then, and then Pharaoh says, Tomorrow. So he said, May be according to your word. Why? That you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. So it's clarifying here that He is unparalleled. He is unique. He's not just one more God that can be clumped in with the Egyptian pantheon. There's something different about the God of Israel. Um, third object, stated objective is uh, Shemot, the book of Exodus, chapter 8, verse 22. There we read. This is about the swarms now. The swarms of flies or however your translation renders that. On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there. Why? In order that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. And that Hebrew term there for land can also mean earth. It's the same word. The Eretz is the land of or the earth. So the stated objective in the swarms of flies strike and him differentiating between his people and uh, the people of Egypt was so that Pharaoh would know that Yahweh is right there. He's not some god at a distance. He's right there in the midst of the land. He's in the thick of things. This is the idea here. And remember, this isn't just about a past historical event. This is about the future also. Because there is going to be another showdown according to the book of Revelation Uh, fourth stated objective is in Exodus chapter 9 verse 14 there we read this one is the preface to the hail for this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth so, uh, again, it's, 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 some, it's somewhat reiterating a previous thought that he isn't just another god out there that you can add to your pantheon. He is the god. He is, he is unique. So you can't just clump him in with uh, Mother Gaia or uh, any other god, let's say, that people are into today. I'm not going to start listing them. Okay, then uh, 9.29. Exodus 9.29, we read the fourth objective. Think it is? Oh, sorry, that's the fifth. 9.29. We read, um, Moses said to him, this is in the midst of this massive thunder and lightning storm, absolutely horrific. It looks like there's some, some type of fire thing going on here too. Moses says, as soon as I go to the city, I'll spread out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer. Why? That you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. So that's the, that's the fourth stated objective. It, it's almost like he's, he's gearing it up every time. This time, he's, this, this is almost like a territorial contest going on here. Pharaoh thinks that he, he uh, owns the land of Egypt. Pharaoh thinks that he is the master of everybody in the country. And here is this, this foreign god that he had not encountered before saying, actually, this whole country belongs to me along with the rest of the planet. That's, that, that's the concept there. Um, in the world today, there are many worldviews, religions, ideologies, that are all fighting with each other for who's going to control the planet. And I'm not going to start listing them because that could take a while. Some of, them more, some of them are more in your face. They have an openly stated agenda. Um, maybe, maybe some religions have um, zones that are already under their control and all the rest of the zone is where holy war is uh, waged until that area is conquered for, for their religion. Uh, maybe some are a little darker and they, they more move behind the scenes and arrange events so that they can eventually uh, have a world ruler or something. Who is to say? Whatever the case may be, there is, there is a dark spirit out there and he wants to take over the planet. Uh, that, that, that seems to be uh, pretty obvious, and it's uh, historically runs as a thread all the way back to Nimrod, who lived only a couple of generations after Noah, right? So, I mean, this thing's been going on for a while. Um, there is another god, though, named Yahweh, who created the place and uh, who rightfully owns the whole thing. And in the Exodus, he was introducing himself and saying, I'm doing this stuff so that you'll know that the whole planet belongs to me. The land is, is rightfully mine. And uh, in the world today, there continues to be a lot of confusion. Let's say about the land of Israel and who the land of Israel belongs to, which God has control over the land of Israel, Jerusalem. Everybody wants a piece of Jerusalem. If Jerusalem is no longer significant in the economy of God, then why is everybody fighting for it? Why is the dark side so adamant about taking it over? I mean, duh you know that that should be really obvious to us, and, and I think it is. So um, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe there is going to be another showdown. Maybe the book of Revelation gives us like a rough outline of how some of that stuff is going to look like. I hope there's going to be. I, I really want the God of Israel to, to step onto the world scene again and show himself on an international level and uh, improve himself to his people and prove himself to, to um, his sworn foes also. Okay. Then we have one more statement. This is one that's actually quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapters 9 to 11, his, uh, his dissertation on national Israel and their place in uh, the Creator's salvific plan. In, Romans cha- in Exodus chapter 9 verse 16, we read, Indeed, he states it really clearly here, For this reason I have allowed you to remain. So get this, like... God could have smashed Pharaoh at the very beginning. The first time an innocent baby's life was extinguished because of Pharaoh's cruel heart and his coldness, God could have just went boom and smashed him right there. But there is a reason he delayed his judgment. And this is why. 9, where are we? 9.16 For this reason I've allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power... And in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. So there's the openly stated objective. It's so that he could show Pharaoh his full force. And so that he could show the whole country of Egypt, which was the world superpower of that era, his full, like the full weight of his power, and what? So that his name, connoting who he is, his reputation, would be told around 10,000 campfires in the next decade after that. I mean, you're like, news traveled fast in the, in the ancient world. Uh, it traveled by traders, merchants. They would sit down, they would trade the news. They would sit around a campfire. You just think about like, um, this, this god of this little underling nation, this little underdog people who were enslaved to Pharaoh and under his throne and being brutalized. Like This god just stepped onto the scene of world, world history. He just it, like, announced himself internationally. And his name was on everybody's lips. You know, if someone, let's say, was a spiritual seeker, if they were really questioning about the Creator and who He was, that would have been a really big help for them on their quest. So, um, there were some lives that were lost in the process, and that breaks my heart. You know, some of the, um, the Hebrew parents who lost their children during those very dark years... But ultimately, the result of the sacrifice that the people of Israel made by following God into the exile, by staying true to Him throughout that time of brutalization, was that the name of God was proclaimed in all the nations. Yahweh was known everywhere. And hopefully some people actually came to believe in Him as a result. Uh, could it be that that will happen in the future? Yes. Maybe it's already happening in places like China. Maybe, maybe this process is already underway. So that's the, that's the first dynamic that I wanted to point out, uh, something that I believe will be one of the overtones in the book of Revelation when some of these, unfo- these events unfold, uh, whenever that's going to be. Uh, the second theme that I wanted to point out is the theme of the preservation of the covenant people of God in the midst of national or international uh, catastrophe. In uh, Exodus chapter 8 verse 22, we, uh, we see this theme come up. There we read, on, the day, on that day, referring to when the, the swarms of flies happen, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there. In order that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will occur. And the Hebrew term there for putting a division is more like setting a ransom or a redemption price. So if someone is is taken hostage, the ransom that is paid is the idea behind the setting of a division. Alright? So... It's like he's phasing in this level of judgment where it doesn't just uh, affect everybody across the board. It's like selective judgment. It's like uh, instead of just carpet bombing the country, he's beginning to send in heat-seeking missiles to the people who have... Lived in contradic- contradiction to his law. It's kind of the context here. Uh, the context here. He's saying there's a difference between my people and your people. And uh, tomorrow, everybody's going to know very clearly who's on what side. Uh, could it be that this will happen in the future? Could it be that there will be that there will be judgments in the future where this occurs? I I, I hope so, actually. Nobody likes judgment, but if it helps people give their heads a shake and realize whose side they're really on, that that could be that could be a very healthy thing uh, for humanity. Um, The next verse there, eight twenty three, I mentioned about setting a ransom, as in like paying a price for someone taken hostage. Um, Two more verses that also have this theme is Exodus chapter nine, verse four. Exodus nine, verse four, where we read, um, "This is the um, epidemic on the livestock." It says, but Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. So here it's not just preserving the people of Israel. It's not just passing, passing over the geographical region where they live. Here it's actually preserving their property and possessions also. That's a very strong testimony. Actually, I'll tell you a little story about that. This is slightly different, but I think it could play into it. Um, part of my family background is a Duke of Bor background. Um, simple, hardworking people from Russia, most of whom were illiterate, who lived communally, who, who, farmed, who farmed the land, who uh, rejected the, uh, the idolatry in uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. And uh, they were persecuted brutally in the late 1800s in Russia uh, through the political... Uh, Activism of Quakers and other groups. A large number of them were allowed to move to Canada, and um, one of them was my great uncle. I think his name was John. I I, I really love like asking my grandparents stories from our family history because we have a history of faith. And anyway, um, my, my great uncle he wasn't a very spiritual guy as you would define someone spiritual. Like he was a hardworking farmer, and uh, he would go to congregation every week, of course. And uh, anyway, they had this one year where they just had massive drought and all the crops were going to fail and this was here in Saskatchewan in the, in the, in the Bland Lake area and um, they, they went to meeting and my great uncle actually stood up and he prayed and like you know it's like one of those guys who never prays right and he prayed like from his heart and he didn't just pray he sang his prayer and it startled everybody and he prayed that God would send rain I suppose, you know, when, when you really get desperate, when tr- crunch time comes, you know when it's time to really pray. And uh, so, that, so he did. And um, I, some people were making fun of him, my, my Baba said. You know, it's like, I, I, I'm assuming he didn't have the best quality voice. I don't know, maybe he was more bellowing, singing. I don't know. Um, that runs in my family too. But um, anyway, so they all went home. And uh, right after that, it started raining, but really selectively. Like, all of their fields got rain. Some of the fields right next door to him, belonging to some of the people who had mocked him under their breath, they didn't get any rain and all their crops died. So, I mean, we have the same God today. He, he will favor people who call on his name. He will come through for them and prove himself. But, you know, if, if we mock the, the, the God who created the universe, we, we may be putting ourselves in for a bad deal in the end. And he might make very sharp distinctions between people who are in His favor and people who have uh, deliberately fallen out of His good graces. So that, that's a story from my family history here in Saskatchewan about Yahweh, the God of Israel, still very active and apparently He isn't just limited to the, uh, the Middle East either. He, he does stuff in, in Canada too. So um, there's, one more, there's one more passage about this in uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 26. We read... Only... Okay, this is after the hail, right? Just just smashes everything. Only in the land of Goshen where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. So again, it's one of these uh, selective judgment things, right? Um, some areas got it and some didn't. And it was very notable which areas got it and uh, which didn't. So, you know... Um, Sometimes there's fear-mongering that goes on in the religious world. We, we, we see coming judgments. We see, maybe maybe we uh, see that uh, disaster is going to hit some country on an economic level or whatever level. And um, our first reaction is to freak out or just focus on the bad. And um, when we see judgments coming, even if they're bona fide judgments and, and, and we know they're going to hit, I mean, it's smart to pray and intercede for mercy. It's smart to prepare on a practical level, uh, Getting out of debt, having a little extra food, stuff like that is a great idea. But it's not smart to freak out or to become afraid. It's smart to go back and remember historically that we have a God who doesn't just carpet bomb areas necessarily. He judges sometimes very selectively. And then sometimes he doesn't. Why? Because, hey, we're like, okay, let's say a judgment hit Canada. We're Canadians. Um, As an intercessor, you, you identify with the people that you're praying for. So you know what? If your people are suffering on a national level, you might suffer a bit too. And that's okay. Um, Paul talked about that. He talked about this concept of filling up what was lacking in Mashiach's afflictions, whatever that means. I'll just give you a couple, like, um, I'm going to, like, do the ping-pong ball thing here, okay? I'm going to bounce around in this Parsha now. I'm going to give you a couple Hebrew insights specifically that you wouldn't get if you were just reading the Bible in English. Um, some of these you would get, though. But... So, um, Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, the Holy One says to Moshe, Look, I'm making you as God, to, as Elohim to Pharaoh, and your brother Aharon shall be your prophet. So, um, here's the first thing. When Moses was sent, in the name of the Holy One, to Pharaoh, he was representing God to Pharaoh. He was essentially God to Pharaoh. Now, of course, we're not blurring the lines here, right? This is what he says. But what does that mean to you and me? Yeshua said, As the Father has sent me, I have sent you. So the exact same commission that Mashiach was given from the Father, we have been given, I don't believe as individuals, we have been given as a Messianic community. There's a difference. He gave that, he gave that commission to a community of disciples. He didn't give it to a bunch of like lone ranger gunslinging individuals, right? Running around doing their own thing because they're the only people who are right or whatever. Um, so let's remember that. We as a community have the same mission as our Rabbi Yeshua had. In that regard, just like Moses was like God to Pharaoh, could it be that you are like Yeshua to the people in your life, your coworkers, workers uh, your neighbors, um, people that you bump into uh, at the gas station, wherever? I, 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 see it, I see a correlation here. It's like him saying to Moses, you are like God to Pharaoh, and him saying to us, you are all, all that some people will know of me. You are like Mashiach to the people in your life. That's why we're, you know, so, okay, you know the connotation Christian, right? You're like, um, you're... has a connotation I've heard of, like, being a little Christ. Um, someone who's anointed. Same word, right? So as Messianics, we are representing Messiah to the world around us. Yeah. It's the idea there. We're anointed with that same spirit. So, secondly, it says here, um, Aaron is uh, Moses' prophet. This gives us an insight into what a prophet is all about. Aaron was Moshe's spokesperson. So, the concept of the gift of prophecy, for instance, that Paul talks about later in 1 Corinthians, he says if there's one gift that you should really want, this is the gift that you should really want. You should seriously want to prophesy. That should be a gift that you're asking God for on a regular basis. Why? Well, because this explains it. If you have the gift of prophecy, it simply means that God is using you as a spokesperson for Him. I want to be a spokesperson for God. We want to be spokespeople for him. We want to be able to speak in his name backed by his power and uh, like, like letting his love come through us to the world around us, eh? So in that regard, you are a prophet of the Holy One. Yeah. That that's something that he has for each of us. I don't know, because sometimes like the whole prophetic gifting, I think it's been like severely misrepresented in the religious world. It doesn't just mean glitz and glamour and giving people personal fortunes or whatever. Like sometimes, okay, maybe you will give someone a word uh, about something that will like witness to their spirits and and be a second witness to something the Father spoken. But it's so much bigger than that. Like, Like, seriously. I've been thinking... This is something I've been meditating on this last week. There's an animal that pictures the Messiah. And that animal is a lion. I mean, if you've ever like actually seen a lion, even in a zoo, like, they are terrifying creatures. They are so majestic. Like, they're massive. And when they roar, like, man, there's no sound like the roar of a lion. And somehow that's, that's the Mashiach. Like, that's the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the Jewish people. So, I mean, when Yeshua roars, what does that sound like? What if he wants to roar through you and me? I don't Have you... Okay. uh, I'm going to go somewhere here for just a second. Sometimes there are secular groups, rock groups, and their singers, they're definitely operating in in an anointing, like in a spiritual power, and I don't think it's necessarily the power of God. But sometimes the way they sing is like they're roaring. And I, I I want to be careful here because I don't want to liken Yeshua who is holy to something that's not holy. But Satan counterfeits stuff, okay? Sometimes singers will like they will sing in a way that is so powerful and grips you so deeply and like hits your very core, your spirit, because they're singing in a spirit and often it's a demonic spirit, right? But that grabs people. Okay, I'll give you an example. Um, if you've ever heard the, the band Nickelback on the radio, they were like Canada's number one band for a couple of years. I, I worked in the construction world, okay? So I was forced to hear Nickelback like over and over and over every, every day. Like they would run Nickelback songs into the ground until almost everyone was sick of them, right? But if you ever listen to their lead like the way he sings is powerful like it grabs people's hearts and um, that's the counterfeit okay that's from the, that's from the other side but what about Yeshua as the lion could it be that when his voice really comes through us it grabs people's <laughs> hearts it's like the roar of a lion like it is something that is so in your face and, and so much bigger than just our normal human voices could it be could it be that that sometimes has to do with the gift of prophecy yeah, this is something I'm thinking about here I think Greg I saw your hand going up there I'm just going to say secularism is a religion too. Yeah, secularism is a religion, that's true. Tickleback is, is a religion for some people. And other times, maybe uh, you know, that, that, and also maybe other times he doesn't just have us roar. Because if you're talking to someone in the parking lot and you just start roaring in their face, you're going to freak them out, right? But if you, speak to, if you speak to that person in the Spirit of God, maybe they'll hear that roar from Yeshua, who is a lion, but it'll be an intelligent speech. Right? It'll be like through something that engages their minds also. So I, I can see how it, will have, it would depend on the context there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Yeshua. That's the, that to me is the litmus test. That's the measuring line, right? Is the spirit testifying of Yeshua? And um, you know what? I, I think you can have like a, a four foot ten lady who's the most soft-spoken lady in the world. Um, you have to like listen in to hear her, right? And she can be speaking in the spirit of the almighty and and, and, and um, that can be the roar of of the line of judah right it doesn't it doesn 't have to do with decibel levels, although I really like decibel levels sometimes, but that 's just me you know so um I have to work on that too because I turn the music up way too loud all the time so let, let's let 's move on here in Exodus chapter seven, verse sixteen this is like this is the prophetic call through Moshe this was the this was the, like the The point around which this whole scenario revolved. Um, He like kept nailing it to Pharaoh over and over. Um, um, This is what Yahweh, the God of Hebrews, He he sent me to you saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. So, I I want to point out two things. Firstly, what is it that they may do, that they may serve me? I like how a couple translations here rendered that as worshipping Him. So, He... When he sends his spirit, when the prophetic voice comes, it sets people free, and it sets them free to worship him. That's the first thing. The Hebrew word is spelled Ein, Vet, Dalet, Avad, and it means to work, or to serve, or to worship. It means all those things. I have an Orthodox Jewish friend who isn't very sharp on his English, and he would talk about working God. He meant to say worshiping God, but it's the same thing in Hebrew, right? so let them go that they may be in my employ so that they may serve me that they may worship me it has all of those connotations there's another word for worship in Hebrew um, like lehishtachavot which means to bow yourself down to so that's usually the word for worship but here it has the connotation of serving him working for him right so what I work for every day that's what I worship yes Yes, our serving is a form of worship or uh, even your career the work that you do can be a form of worship to the Holy One which is nice, because I mean, hey, we like work for, you know, five or six days, a lot of us, and it's nice to be able to say, I'm doing this for you. Absolutely. Yeah, it does say that in Revelation too, I think in Revelation 18 or something, when it's talking about Babylon, the mixture, the syncretism, come out of it. Yeah. And uh, where does he say to come to? He says to come to the wilderness. He's, here's the Hebrew term for wilderness. It's a uh, M-I-D-B-A-R, midbar, midbar. And uh, the root of it is the same root as the word for word. Like uh, a word is devar, right? The word of God is the devar Elohim. The midbar, it's from the same root. So there's something about the wilderness that has a very strong connection in Hebrew to the word. Could it be that when he brings you out into the wilderness, that's where you truly receive his word? Could it be that that's where you're able to hear his word clearly? Uh, could it be that that's where you're free to structure your life according to the Word? If you're locked in the system, if you're under the thumb of Pharaoh or uh, whoever, the, whoever the, the ruler is from the dark side, um, it's a little harder sometimes to structure your life according to the Word of God. Even on a practical level like... Um, you know, we live in the Western world. It's really tough for some people to get Shabbats off. And I mean, hey, that's the way it is. You know, I have a friend in Saskatoon who's like a real mother in the Messianic community there. And she says, you know, well, we're, we're, we're still in Egypt and sometimes that, that's just the way it has to be. But that's an example. So, whatever that looks like for each of us, he is inviting us to the wilderness. Um, he wants to set you free there in worship. And he wants to communicate his word to you very personally. And maybe he'll do that on a national level in the future too. It does talk in Revelation 12 about the woman who is obviously national Israel which doesn't just mean in my opinion ethnic Jews but also people who have been grafted in Her going out to the wilderness for like it even gives a time frame if you want to read Revelation 12 sometime. Um, Okay, next next Hebrew insight here. Um, When you like okay there are certain things in the Torah where it says if you uh, you know you have certain things and then you immerse yourself in water Right? Um, the, uh, the place of immersion in water in Hebrew is called a mikvah. Everybody say mikvah. Often in English you'll say you do a mikvah. Like when you're baptized, you're, uh, you're going down in the waters of the mikvah. You're doing a mikvah, essentially. That's kind of like an anglicized way of saying it, right? And um, this, word is, this word turns up in interesting places throughout the Torah. I'll give you one because doing a mikvah is actually one of the commands of Torah after certain things that happen in your life. So, you know, as we begin reading through the book of Leviticus, we'll hit some of those places. And uh, the concept of a mikveh here is in Exodus chapter 7, verse 19, where it says, uh, Then Yahweh said to Moshe, Say to Aaron, uh, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over their streams, and over their pools, and over all their reservoirs of water. And the Hebrew term there for reservoirs is uh, mikveh, mikveh maim." So um, that that term is also in Genesis 1 where it talks about the gathering of waters. So I'll give you the root concept behind a mikvah because it'll give you some insight into the spirit of the law. Why does God say to immerse in water um, in certain times of your life? The root concept of mikvah is uh, the verb kavah, which means to gather to or to focus on. It's like a gathering of waters is a mikvah. Um, like a a focal point of waters. So um, when you immerse yourself in water, in obedience to that mitzvah, um, for instance, when you're originally immersed in the name of Yeshua, and at other times in life, it's a time to gather your thoughts to the Holy One in prayer, on a deeper level. it's It's a focal point between you and the Almighty as a physical act. So that's kind of the idea behind mikvah. We'll get into that more in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 8, verse 19. The magicians say to Pharaoh, This one is the finger of God. They couldn't create, they couldn't bring forth gnats. Like this was out of their caliber here they realized they'd been outclassed. And um, that term, finger of God, is etzba Elohim in Hebrew. Uh, it's like an idiom for the supernatural, something from the fifth dimension, something that is like the result of a higher power than what you see uh, operative in like uh, the natural order. That's the idea behind the finger of God. So they were like, this one is Ham. Right? They, point- they were pointing at the Holy One for this one. Um, That same term is used with regards to the technique through which the tablets were written. Remember, they were written with the finger of God. So they were written via supernatural means. It wasn't via natural writing process, like with your chisel or whatever. Um, This term is also used by the master, this Hebrew idiom. In uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 20, he says that he cast out demons by the finger of God, the etzba Elohim. So in other words, um, you know, often how do demons manifest themselves? Often through its like psychological disorders or dysfunction, um, through massive relational problems, etc. And of course, we have to be careful because just because someone's having some issues doesn't mean that they have a demon, right? I'm not saying that. But you know what? Why don't we have many instances of like demon-possessed people going hoogity-hoogity and like rolling around on the floor or whatever? Maybe, maybe demons are a little more undercover in our culture. Maybe sometimes some people that do have psychological issues, maybe there is some stuff that needs to be cleaned out of the house, if I could use that analogy. I'm just saying maybe, right? Yeah. So anyway... Um, Yeshua says that the way he eliminated demons was not via natural means; it was via supernatural means. It was by the power of God. So that's something to remember. There are there are people in Prince Albert who have issues. Maybe some of them are do have like a source in the dark side. And what Yeshua is just saying here is it's by God's finger. It's kind of cool. The finger isn't very powerful, but it's all it takes for God, right? It's like I, don't know, I can almost imagine him like. Given a little tweak, right? And it's gone? Something like that. But anyway, he's saying it's by supernatural means. It's by his power. Um, here's, here's a key to help us understand the whole finger of God um, analogy. In the parallel passage to this Luke passage where Yeshua says that he kicks out demons by the finger of God, he says in Matthew twelve twenty eight that he kicks out demons, he, uh, he casts them out by the Spirit of God. Okay, So the finger of God and the Spirit of God are interchangeable concepts. We can just remember that. So it's the Divine Spirit, it's the Spirit of God that helps people. Okay, um, Exodus 9.5, I'll give you another Hebraic insight. <clears throat> it says, Yahweh set a definite time saying, tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land. Uh, the complete Jewish Bible translation rendered that as like an exact time. What, do you know what the Hebrew term is for a definite or an exact time? M-o-ed, that's right. M-O apostrophe E-D. A moed here is translated as a definite or an exact time. Um, this is the same term in Leviticus 23 where he says, these are my appointed times. In the King James Version, it's mistranslated as feasts. These are my feasts. That's like, that's like if you were to apply that translation here, you'd be saying, the Lord set a feast saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. It just doesn't work. right? So the concept is, this is one of the ways of God And His ways are eternal. Okay? So, one of the ways of God is He isn't loose and sloppy with scheduling and time. God is precise. He is pinpoint accurate. So, if He says, I'm setting an, an exact time then we can't just play with that and say, well, you know, I don't know, God. um, You said it's this day, but I'm just going to do it maybe another day later or another time during the week because, well, you know my heart, God, right? And it's not about physical stuff. It's all spiritual or whatever. I mean, like, we all have times when we kind of apply certain concepts to the stated Word of God and the state of, this is one of the ways of God. He has appointed times. He is a God of appointed times. He says, I am setting this time. This is a date between you and me. And I would love to see you there. Uh, Saturday is one of God's appointed times. The weekly Sabbath. Um, he says that in Leviticus 20, chapter 23. That's why it's so special to me getting together on Saturday morning. It's like, wow, I'm going to an appointed time with the Creator. Like Mashiach, he set a date with us here as his bride. And we're here to spend time with him. Yeah. So let's just, uh, let's just remember that. This is one of the ways of God. This continues to be one of the ways of God. What if we as the body of Messiah like returned to this ancient path, to to this, this one of His ways? What, uh, I wonder if we wouldn't just begin to experience revival instantaneously. I wonder if we wouldn't just go to a higher level in His glory. I believe we would. Because when we walk in His ways, He will empower us and we will find Him there in His life-giving spirit. And um, that, that's what people call revival. So... I'll give you a Hebrew idiom here also in Exodus 9.29. Okay, one of, one of the idioms in the, in the Torah for praying is to call on the name of Yahweh, to cry out in His name, right? Another idiom is to spread out your hands. Here Moses says, um, this is a physical action. 9.29, he says, As soon as I go out of the city, I'll spread out my hands. Ephrosa et kapai is how he says it in Hebrew. Um, so, it's just one more example of how prayer isn't only a verbal thing where you say stuff to the Holy One. Prayer is also a very physical act. Um, for instance, when you just go like this, that is prayer. Okay? If you're doing that with, uh, with kavanah, like with intent, intentionally, that is prayer to the Holy One, right? So you know what? Some of us don't always feel like saying stuff to God in prayer, and that can be okay. There's a time to just stand before the Holy One and lift your hands to Him, and that is your prayer. Maybe maybe dancing is another example. I know some of us are out of our comfort zone when we dance, and I'm so proud of you guys for for stepping out of your comfort zone and and um, and dancing. That's awesome. It was for me as a construction worker when I first started learning how to dance. Um, for sure. Okay, let's look at First Corinthians. I know I'm like giving you a whirlwind uh, overview here, hey, but let's uh, we're packing it in. It's kind of like the you know the the girls who had the lamps and some of them didn't have enough oil and then when the dark night came like they ran out I feel like we're in a time when He is giving us a lot of oil when we can really stockpile on his revelation and on what his Holy Spirit's communicating so like we're doing a stockpile session here this morning right so I'm like just I'm throwing oil at you here right so just just catch it and put it in your jar and then um, maybe there'll be a tough time in your life when you can I don't know, pull it out. Maybe the Holy Spirit will remind you of something, or maybe just go back and review your notes. <laughs> if you're like me and you can't remember stuff very well. Okay, 1 Corinthians, chapters 1 to 3. What do Paul and Moses have in common? Moshe in this parsha and Paul in this section have something in common. Can anyone guess what it is? Or, uh, they're messengers. They're messengers, mm-hmm. Moses didn't think very well of his oratorical skills. He was like, "Well, God, I I don't talk very good, you know." Um, And Paul, in this passage, also pointed out a couple of times that when he came preaching the gospel, he wasn't relying on his oratorical skills or his ability to impress people verbally. Um, That wasn't that wasn't his strong point. So apparently, Moses and Paul didn't think they they were very accomplished speakers. I don't know. Maybe they like flunked. Um, preaching 101 in seminary Or maybe they would have If they tried You know It does tell me something It tells me God's ways Aren't always our ways um, Yeah He uses people Like who don't think They can talk very well And that's cool Maybe he lost it After 40 years in the desert With a bunch of sheep Hey I mean Sheep aren't very intelligent They're not very Good conversationalists Genevieve can do that too Because she Like knows Spanish And Hebrew and Some of Both at least Right Sometimes like Sometimes you'll like mix up he- Hebrew and Spanish words and I'll be like, I don't recognize that word. She'll be like, oh, that's Spanish. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm proud of Genevieve because I don't know any Spanish, so I-, I look up to her in that regard. Um, here, here, here's a little, little story for you. Some of you have heard this one before, I'm sure. This is a pretty classic Jewish story. So there was this Jewish guy, and um, I don't know, he like, his ship sunk or he fell out of an airplane or something, and he ended up on this desert, deserted island, and finally he's found two decades later, right? And um, he's really built himself a nice little place. Like, he has a really nice hut, he you know, has a little system for coconuts and whatever, and um, he even built a synagogue. So, you know, he goes to a synagogue every Shabbat and so he shows his rescuers around and they're like, wow, thatched palm roof synagogue and, I don't know, um, all of this, right? And they walk out and then they see another building over there in the distance and they say, well, what's that building? And they say, he says, oh, that's the other synagogue. That's the one I don't go to. Um, So he built two synagogues because, you know, if you're Jewish, you have to have the synagogue you go to and then that's the one I don't go to. Um it's not always true but sometimes it is and it's it's kind of sad sometimes too maybe we do that in the in the christian world too sometimes you know i don't know but um maybe they were starting to do that in corinth let's look at first corinthians 1 to 3 okay let uh, this is this is a this is a really powerful verse and i'm going to talk for a couple minutes not on like a local community level here i'm going to talk on a broader level in terms of the messianic Jewish-slash-Hebraic-roots movement, um, and uh, also just talking in terms of the, the body of Christ. Um, th- this is something, this is like a command, this is a mitzvah that Yeshua's emissary, Paul, gives to, the, to his community in Corinth. He says, I exhort you, brothers, which is a very strong word, exhort, by the name of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I want to say first thing, people, if if someone is like a power freak, or like someone who's out to control people, they will use this verse to control your brain, and not let you ask questions, right? And we are not, in the Jewish world in general, we're not like that, and we're not like that in this community. Like, I love asking questions, I love thinking through things, there is room for that, right? But just stop and think about this for a second. Like, this is the will of God. This is the ideal for the Messianic community. Like, to have such a level of agreement, to to so be of the same mind, to so be of the same judgment. Like, the the concept of judgment, um, to have a common purpose is how David Stern's translation rendered it. To, To make unanimous decisions. Like, think about this. This isn't just something that's possible. This is mandated from Mashiach. Like, this is our mandate as a community here. And I don't feel like we have disunity issues here, right? So that's why I'm saying I'm talking on a broader level here. But this is our mandate as a movement. Let me ask you, is that possible on a human level? Is it possible to have that level of unity? Totally not. I mean, you even know the proverb, right? Like, two Jews, three opinions. Right? It's like, Jewish people are famous for having a very wide variety of opinions. And there's so much room for that, and that's a good thing. But just think about like, when a community of believers really are of one mind, when they're really agreed, when they have a common mission, when they're able to make unanimous decisions instead of just ramming something through by a slim majority, that is a testimony to the world. Because that is, that is people living on a supernatural level. That is people who have been transformed from the inside out. That is people who, who are being influenced by the same source. Right? It's like, that, th- those are people that have been melded together as a body that have one head that is calling the shots and, and giving them their directions. And um, I, I want that. I do. Like, I long for that in the body of Christ. I long for that in the, the Messianic Jewish slash Hebrew Roots movement. Um, we're not there. We're going in that direction. It's one of the last things Yeshua prayed to Abba in John 17. He prayed that just like God is Echad, just like the Father and Son are one, we would be one also. I, I have a heart for that. I, I'm willing to take steps towards it. You know, Even like I, I go to the ministerials in Prince Albert. Um, I definitely don't agree theologically with some things, with um, some of the guys at the ministerials. But at the same time, I want to do my part in seeing Yeshua bring whatever level of unity He wants to, And I mean, okay, there is such a thing as false unity, okay? You can't just round up all the believers you want and get them crammed in a stadium and then have a service and say, yeah, we're one or this is unity. That isn't necessarily true unity, right? There's such a thing as true unity and false unity and I'm just thinking about this. Like, I just want the real thing and um, you know what? The Father's going to answer Yeshua's prayer and it's going to happen and I just want to cooperate with Him when it does happen. I want to have the desire for it in my heart. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to be praying for that. I don't want to be one of the people. People who uh, who have a bias against that, who uh, who just take off when when that time comes, yeah. So I know I, I seriously I have some hesitations about popular systems of church government in that regard. Um, often the way we do church government in uh, the denominational system looks a lot more like the world than it does like the early church or the uh, the, the New Testament. Like when you make decisions. By democratic means, by voting, uh, by having the majority of the congregation vote something through, you are settling for second best at at the very least. I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm just saying God has something greater for us. Like according to this verse, Messiah has unanimous decisions for us. The like the, the condition when we're all living selflessly and we're in touch with the Spirit, and He is anointing leadership. That hears from his voice when the gift of prophecy is operative the ideal is everybody agrees we make unanimous decisions like forget this de- democratic voting something in by the majority really and I mean it, it's brutal for churches it's brutal for people's hearts and um, okay like God bless Robert and his rules of order it has a place it definitely has a place in our society and in western culture but Yeshua's people are different we operate by a different set of um, set of rules yeah, we operate by His Ruach Hakodesh, His Holy Spirit. hmm So that's that's my perspective. Um, let's let's look at a couple more verses along these lines here in First Corinthians one twelve. He says, okay, so he's he's giving us some details here, right? We're getting like a really good peek at the early Yeshua community in in the city of Corinth. Um, okay, so some people are like they're breaking down into factions, right? Some people are like, man, I'm like Paul's my guy, right? I'm with Paul. Then another guy's like, well, Apollos is my guy. Like nobody can preach like Apollos, right? He he can really communicate to us. Maybe some of that Greek wisdom because he was from Alexandria, he was from the Alexandrian school of thought. And then maybe some of the more traditional Jews were like, Simon Peter's our man. He He's, the, he's right, you know, he is so pristine when it comes to his observance of the mitzvot and uh, man, power, like, you know, they were Jewish people, right? Says they were looking for signs and Simon Peter would give them those signs, like powerful stuff. So, you know, they were kind of breaking down into these factions and then there was another faction that said, we're of Messiah. God bless them. I think they were more on track than, on, on track than the other ones. But you know what, like Paul didn't think that was very cool. He didn't think that was very cool at all. Um, what did he have to say about that? Um, in First Corinthians 3, 1-5, this is what he had to say. I'll read you this, and then maybe we'll look at some ways that we do this in, in the Christian world and in the Messianic world today. And, um, okay, so he starts talking to them like they're babies, right? He's talking to them like they're a bunch of babies. He says, I gave you milk to drink and not solid food. Because you, you couldn't even take it. And then in verse 3, because you're still fleshly, you're still carnal. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, carnal? And aren't you walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul and another of Apollos, aren't you mere men? So get this for a second. He's like, he's like saying that when we break down into factions and we make our primary allegiances with people or organizations instead of with Messiah, we are operating on a fleshly level. We, are, we officially qualify as being carnal. We are not living in the power of God. We are just living on a physical level. And uh, that's disgusting to God. That, that is ultimately disastrous to, uh, to communities. So, um, here, I'll give you a couple examples of how, how, in my opinion, we do that today. Let's begin with the, the Messianic community. Um, when some people very strongly align themselves with, uh, let's say, an organization like FFOZ. First Fruits of Zion. And other people say, no, we will have nothing to do with them because they don't teach exactly like I believe. Um, And some people align themselves with Tim Haig instead. Okay, I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm going to be really specific here with some examples, and then it's like, and we have nothing to do with uh, the FFOZ or anything that has to do with them. Or some people are like Tim Haig, is, we're just writing him out of our books, right? Um, that would be an example. Um, what What are some other examples when we very strongly identify, let's say, with the MIA, the Messianic Israel Alliance, and then other people dig in their heels and say, well, I am UMJC, I am Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. Now, like as I'm saying this, there are there are um, there are truth matters here, okay? And um, we do want to be objective. We want to evaluate the teaching of an individual organization. Uh, there are some things that the UMJC um, stands for that I that I have a, some serious reservations about. How sometimes how Gentiles are treated in UMJC congregations. Um, God bless them though. Like they are they are on the quest and they're my brothers and they're also flying a banner to see. Uh, 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 like a, a, a solid Jewish community, Messianic Jewish community that can reach the broader Jewish community. So this is good, right? I'm just giving this as an example. Um, maybe, maybe there's some things in the MIA, maybe some emphases that um, some people would have, have issues with. I'm giving you some examples. So it's like, that's fine. There's a place for evaluating doctrine. There's a place for that. But we go to extremes, in the Messianic Jewish community. It's like, well, if that person or that congregation does high asod, or even mentions anything from Torah Club, like, I'm writing them out of my books, they can't be of God. Right? And I mean, hey, really, we do that. Um, there's, some, there's some serious lines of division between, like, UMJC um, affiliates and MIA affiliates. And I, I seriously believe that it grieves the Spirit of God. I believe that when we come into the love of Yeshua, when we focus on the common ground that we have in the kingdom of God, which is bigger than Judaism, which is bigger than Messianic Judaism, when we focus on like, the truth that we do have in our shared inheritance and the covenants and, and the entire Torah, like, this stuff transcends some of our stupid differences and our bickering and I, I seriously think if Paul was around today most people would hate his guts and a lot of people would write him out of their books because he just wouldn't fit their boxes and he, maybe he'd even be saying some of the same stuff maybe he'd be like you guys are a bunch of babies in the messianic movement why can't you get along a little more like why, can you find your unity in Yeshua what were you baptized in the name of the UMJC or the MIA or, or first fruits of Zion or Tim Haig? like whose name do you carry Is Yeshua really your primary focus? Is the gospel of Yeshua the banner that you fly? Is the kingdom of God what you stand for? Are you all about Yeshua as His disciples? Or have you settled for something less? Do you have a lesser identity? Okay, I'll hit another one. The sacred name movement. The the sometimes wild and wacky sectors of the sacred name movement. I'm not saying it's all bad, because I cherish the use of the name of God, right? But there's some stuff in the sacred name movement, like extreme sectors, that is so far out there, and so not grounded in truth, and so inconsistent with the New Testament. And, and often, like... Um, You'll have people in the, quote, sacred name movement who will, like, write off everybody who calls God Lord or Adonai even. It's like, well, you know, they're not part of my club. And it's like we, we drop these little boxes and then we sit in our boxes and um, we write off everyone who doesn't fit in our little theological boxes or our pet doctrines, whatever they may be. Amen. And um, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I sense that like God is calling us to His heart. And to get back to the basics. The basics of the apostolic scriptures are the gospel of Yeshua, the kingdom of God, it's built on the Torah and the covenants, the previous covenants that He established. These are things that we share in common. Sometimes I think if we come from a believing background, we we take the basics for granted it's like forget the basics we covered that however many years ago let's like launch off into some really esoteric stuff and um, debate about like trivial minutia that really doesn't matter and has absolutely no relevancy to our lives on a practical level like you know sometimes we do that I'm not saying we as a community we do actually I'm really, I, I'm really thankful for where we as, we're at as a community but man like I've been to some midrashes that were gong shows you know it's just like man couldn't we like focus on something that's relevant or practical I don't know so anyway, let, let's, uh, let's, um, here, let, let's talk about... Okay, so I'm, I'm being hard on the Messianic community here because that's us, right? I'm, I'm talking on a broader level. Let's talk about the Christian world too. I'm part of the Christian world. I believe in Christ, right? Um, do we do that in the Christian world? Do we sometimes draw up our lines of affiliation or have our little boxes that we live in and we never stray from them and maybe just kind of excuse everyone that's not in the box? Um, okay, my, like my dad went to Southern Baptist Seminary in Texas, right? Uh, my mom told me some, some interesting stories from the Baptist world. Um, they would say things like, You know what, guys? If we have a commission to take the gospel to the whole world, and if we don't accomplish that commission, God just may have to use someone else like the Pentecostals. <laughs> oh, seriously, like, they said stuff like that. And you know what, like, God bless the Southern Baptist Convention. They've come a long ways over time. Um, they, they 've really like moved away from that that mentality, but sometimes I sense like our denominationalism can be in danger of being like this Corinthian factionalism. You know, when one person says, well, I'm of Luther, I'm a Lutheran, I was born a Lutheran, I'm to die a Lutheran. Um, when people say, what, like, I'm of Pope, Pope Benedict, or uh, I'm of Gene Edwards, if you've, any of you have heard of Gene Edwards, a famous house church author, or um, I'm of Tim Horton, I think is a common one in Canada. I'm of Tim Horton, personally. I'll admit it okay um, you know uh, we do that so uh, I'm Baptist and I'm going to be a Baptist to the day of my death and if something isn't Baptist then it must be wrong or, or Pentecostal or whatever I mean okay I, I, and there's a place I, I know there's a place for organization in the body of Christ sometimes denominational structures can serve as uh, just a useful organization and that's cool but man like I, I think we've let denominationalism become something it should not be and we do that And um, if we want the power of God, if we want to see Yeshua operating through us in His fullness to reach the world around us, we are going to have to drop some of our denominationalism, some of our factionalism. We're going to have to, like, reject that yeah a common mind and a common purpose yeah as I was prayerfully like preparing this message I, I felt this strongly so I don't usually talk this emphatically do I I think I'm waving my hands a little more than usual and I hope I don't look mad or whatever but like I just I, I long to see us come into what Yeshua has for us as a greater messianic movement as the body of Messiah and if we're going to go there we are going to have to change things. some of some of us are going to like need an attitude adjustment seriously um yeah so, here, here, um, here maybe is like some practical stuff along those lines. Maybe this is Paul's reply. In First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, he poses a couple of questions. He says, has Messiah been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you immersed in the name of Paul? So maybe that's where it's at. Maybe this is what will bring us back. When we refocus on Yeshua the Messiah, and we remember that we are members of His body, and He is not divided. If Yeshua is in you and in me and in some of the other people in this area that <laughs> maybe don't want to like, see anybody's face or whatever. You know what? If Yeshua is in all of us then, and He's not divided, then we are one. Whether we like it or not, that is the truth. Those are facts to come to grips with. Um, so that's the first thing. We are members of Messiah's body and He is not divided. Maybe when we say the Shema and we say God is one... We can remember that on a practical level. Um, secondly, he says, who was crucified for us? So we can remember the crucifixion of Mashiach. We have a common Savior who suffered so much for us, who, who valiantly laid down His life for us. And that is the core of our faith. And that is something that all believers... True believers in Yeshua do have in common. And then thirdly, he says, were you immersed in the name of Paul? So we can remember that each of us, we were immersed. I, I hope that we've been immersed. Each of us have been immersed in the name of Yeshua. It is His name that is called on us. We're called Christians, what, like two or three times in the New Testament? We're called disciples of Yeshua hundreds of times. So as we come back to our identity as disciples of Yeshua, as we develop as a discipleship movement, we're going to find that unity that He has for us. Whoa, I'm way over time here. I'm sorry, you guys. I totally lost track of the <laughs> of the clock. I thought it was like twelve twenty-five right now. Well, you you time shall be no more. You up, you know, more. What does it say? Yom Shemuel Shabbat, the day that is all Shabbat. Hey, it's going to be like the thousand year Sabbath. So we're just getting a taste of the thousand year Sabbath. Oh yeah, right. Okay, hey, I, I won't pull a Paul. Yeah, I don't want anyone falling off their chairs and like bashing their heads open. Um, I'll just I'll just give you a couple like final concepts here and you can write them down and develop them in your own uh, meditation times in this upcoming week if you want Um, Paul talks about the cross here Um, sometimes in the messianic community we have some angst about the cross even like David Stern's translation the execution stake right it's trying to get us out of this religious iconology of having the little T that you wear around your neck or whatever the big T on your church or whatever like the cross is objectively it's the crucifixion of Mashiach subjectively it's something that has to happen to each of us and our self, life. Our old the old person in us. That cross has to go bam and like hit that old person and, and, and it dies, right? And then Yeshua can live through us. Anyway, uh, Paul just talks about like in his determination in First Corinthians two to, to know nothing except Yeshua the Messiah and Him crucified. Um, that was my that was like my goal in my late teens. I made that like my verse. And um, maybe we want to make that our verse together. To know Yeshua and Him crucified. That is what we're all about. It's like if it doesn't fit that grid, then we're going to seriously analyze it and maybe not go for it. Um, Paul talks about in here about like how people who have these credentials that they can that they can offer and people who can really have something to brag about. Maybe they have uh, maybe they have um, a degree, or maybe they uh, I don't know, whatever. Lots of, lots of examples of that that are, that are touted in the, in the world today and in the religious world. Paul says, you know what? God's, God doesn't use stuff like that. So, that's encouraging. Well, maybe I'll just leave you with the question of what does he use? Um, if he doesn't play by the world's rules, and sometimes by the world's rules as, they are, as we have let them into the body of Christ, then what, what are his rules? Um... He talks about the demonstration of the spirit and power instead of just a bunch of blah, 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 like verbosity was uh, his whole thrust. That's something I'm on a quest for. I, I want to see the demonstration of the spirit in my life and in our lives. I want to see the power of God being like being what does it for us and what our message is. Um, yeah, it's like bigger than anything we could ever say. Um, Paul was really Yeshua-centered. He talked here about how Yeshua is the wisdom of God, the power of God, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. So I'll I'll challenge you with this. If any doctrine, if any idea, if any practice comes to you that isn't Yeshua-centered, that doesn't glorify Yeshua, then it may be a distraction. It may actually be a satanic diversion. So our righteousness is in Yeshua our holiness is in Him and then of course there's the process of working that out right? That's not what I'm talking about here but our core identity is in Him He is the foundation Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11 So Yeshua as a person as our Rabbi is the foundation of our community of disciples um, 1 Corinthians 1.18 I am not saved if someone asks you if you're saved tell them you're not saved but say you're being saved as Paul says in 1 Corinthians one eighteen, to those of us who are being saved yeah of course we're saved I know that right but, but, but it's not just like this one time deal according to Paul salvation is a process that we are continuing in the midst of so remember that what does that look like in the upcoming week um, mm-hmm. who did you say working out? who's working it out ooh that's a there, there's a term for you yeah we're working out our salvation right Maybe we're working out our righteousness and our holiness too, eh? Yeah, absolutely. The end of this section, he says, everything belongs to you as a messianic community, like the whole planet. Everything belongs to you. Is that your worldview? Let it become your worldview. That's really big. He who endures to the end will be saved. Wow. Right. Excellent. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this very simple thought. Um, Paul says in 1, 1 Corinthians 1.9 that God has called us to fellowship with Yeshua, our Master. So that's the call. It's not just to following a list of rules. It's not just to doing certain things. It's not just to Torah slash Bible study. I, I, these things are good, right? But I'm saying it's not... It's not about our physical actions. Ultimately, it's about fellowship with Yeshua, and those physical actions should flow out of that fellowship with the Master. Um, so, if you're doing a, a mitzvah and you're realizing that the heart of that mitzvah, like a command of God, isn't fellowship, you need to stop and take a pulse. You need to reevaluate. Why am I doing this thing, right? Uh, what would be an example? Okay, I'll give you an example in my life. I wear tzitzit. I wear fringes, right? Numbers chapter 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. Yeshua wore fringes. That's what the lady grabbed when she was healed, right? I wear these things because it's a mitzvah. It's a command of God. But it would be so easy for me to put on my tzitzit in the morning and just put them on and not think about why I'm doing it or just do it because it's a commandment. Maybe because I have like a... Some, some weird... like I need to be right complex or something. You know, sometimes we can have that. If I, it's like the heart of this thing is like can I put these things on in the morning and do it in the context of fellowship with my master that's the idea right why do we, why do we like stop everything on Shabbat and uh, observe his Sabbath if it's not about fellowship with Yeshua then maybe we're missing the point Shalom I'm Izzy Avraham and thank you for joining me for this talk I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.